From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Shockman, and thank you for joining us. On the first Friday of every month, I'll be sitting down with newsmakers and journalists to dig a little deeper into the latest local stories. Coming up later in this hour, we'll break down the ins and outs of several high-profile public-private partnerships in our region. And we'll take a closer look at the cooperative grocery store planned for Wilmington's north side. But first, the challenges facing the city of Wilmington, as seen by someone who has dealt with them for a long time. Joining me now is Mayor Bill Sappho, first elected to city council in 2003 and appointed to replace Spence Broadhurst in 2006. He's since won seven consecutive mayoral elections. Sappho is also a native Wilmingtonian who has seen the population nearly triple since he graduated from Hoggard High School. The city's changed a lot over the years, and as a councilman and mayor, he's overseen a lot of that, especially in our downtown area. Mayor, welcome to the program, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben, for having me. So I want to start, I think it's fair to say that many of the issues facing Wilmington, they're just not going to be solved overnight, uh, certainly not by the end of the year. So I want to start off by asking, will you be running for mayor again in 2021? That's that's uh, yet to be determined, but I am thinking about it. Absolutely. Fair enough. Um, so last month there was a joint meeting with the county, and uh, you, you and members of uh, city council and, and county commissioners, discussed some regional approaches to issues like homelessness, affordable housing, development, both economic and real estate. And uh, you know, for me, this kind of felt like a new approach. How did you feel about this? Well, it's been a while since we have sat down with the county commissioners and um, chairman, um, chairperson Bozeman reached out to me and said, you know, I think it's time for us to have a a, a sit down and talk about the issues that we're both dealing with, um, a lot of issues that we're both dealing with. And and so um, we said, sure, let's sit down and do that. We sat down, had a preliminary meeting, talked about some specific subjects that we felt that we both wanted to work on together between the two um, bodies. And then went forward and had that meeting. And, you know, I thought it was, overall it was a very good meeting. A, a lot of uh, uh, subjects that we talked about or touched on. Um, I, and obviously, we would like to have more of these meetings. So we, of course, um, have um, set up a meeting uh, two months from that particular day to come back and address specifically with details and options the issues that we um, were talking about and asked our respective city and county staffs to work on those proposals or um, before we get there. So we have some options to decide and, and to pick from. Will one of those issues be uh, wave transit? Because I know, um, you know, it, this, is a, this is a longstanding issue, but there's, you know, maybe some room to change how the financing structure works. Is that something you guys will be looking at again in April? Absolutely. I, wave transit probably was the, the one that really kind of started this whole discussion. And, and we've been talking about wave transit, restructuring wave transit, working with the city and the county um, about, you know, what do we do moving forward? Well, when trans, when the Cape Fear um, Transit Authority was created, there was never a funding source associated with it. So when the funding dried up or the, the money uh, was shortcoming from the federal government, the state government, the transit director would come to the city and county ask us for a loan or ask us for some help and that created some angst between the city and the county uh, over a number of years um and so we felt we we finally need to really talk about a funding source a committed funding source for public transportation in this region and 
we hope that we're going to be able to come up with some some strategy to to move that forward. Um, obviously, there were some options that put on the table, but I don't think it was only specific to wave transit. We've got a lot of transit and and um, transportation issues that we are dealing with as a region. Obviously, as you well know, Ben, and you kind of alluded to it in your intro, we've got a significant amount of growth that is happening here today and will continue to happen probably for the next 20 years. In the state of North Carolina, we anticipate an, an additional million people within the next decade. The vast majority of that growth is going to come in four specific areas, and that's going to be Buncombe, Asheville, Charlotte, Mecklenburg, Wake, Raleigh, and Wilmington, New Hanover, Pender, and Brunswick. That's where the demographers are saying that the majority of that growth is going to go. So we know we've got we're we're behind now on transportation initiatives um, with you know stuff that we've been talking about with the Department of Transportation that has not materialized as of today because of their financial woes. So we wanted to have a much broader discussion about not only wave transit but also transportation in general for the entire region. Um, so there's a lot of work to go, but we're going to need money to make that happen. So hopefully we can leverage some of the dollars that we can create with the Department of Transportation to start these initiatives moving forward uh, sooner rather than later. And that's one of the issues that we are really uh, are contending with. Yeah, let me let me break in here a little bit and talk about a related issue, and that's affordable housing. Uh, you know, two mm-hmm. big factors, you know, in growth. You got to have somewhere to live, and you got to be able to get to work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to play a clip here uh, just to refresh people's memory. And this is, um, I hope this isn't unfair, but this is from uh, 2019. This is your candidate interview with our own Rachel Lewis Hilburn on Coastline, mm-hmm. and uh, you were talking about, you know, affordable housing and what the city can and cannot do. So can we can we roll that? So, for example, the new development that we're looking at up here on the north end between 3rd and front there at the gateway into the city of Wilmington will have an affordable housing component in there. Now, we're working through on on what they call the request for proposal with East West, which was the developer that is also doing River Place that has come forward uh, to develop this this piece of property. In the original scope of of their proposal, they have uh, allocated 5%. We want more than that. So we're in the current process, we're in the process right now of currently negotiating that number up. I would like to see more around 30%. Um, So that's number one. So anything that we own that we can ask for affordable units to be put in there. So we are going to ask for that. So obviously COVID has slowed down uh, development a lot. Um, But first I want to ask, is that gateway project still on the horizon for the city? Yes, it is. And And we are still currently negotiating with East West. Uh, Obviously they had to put some things on hold and they were holding back on moving forward because of issues that they were dealing with at River Place, but plus financial issues that they were looking at for this particular project. But they have indicated that they want to continue to move forward with that project. So we are continuing to negotiate and talk with them about about this project. Do you still think 30 percent affordable housing is is that still a viable number? I think it's doable. I really do, Ben. And um, and I think they feel it's doable. It, 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 you know, a lot of it would depend on, you know, how much does the city want to participate in this process? And the city has allocated um, some money for affordable units in the area. And not only through our federal programming that we get from CDBG, but also what we uh, put into affordable housing through the general fund. That's taxpayers dollars that we use to subsidize some of the housing uh, programs that we that the city currently uh, 
has, but I do feel that we should be able to obtain 30% of workforce affordable housing in that in that development. Do you have a sense, and obviously this is the county's project and not your guys, although you guys might be renting some office space in there. With Project mm-hmm. Grace, do you have a sense why, you know, Zimmer and the county came out to around 5% um, when, you, when the city seems to be doing something a bit more, I don't know, a bit more ambitious? I think you would have to ask them that. Obviously, if we're a part of that project, I would hope that we could push that that number higher. Um, but it you know it comes down to the developer working with with the um, the local government as to what the local government is going to demand or work on. And you know five percent, I guess, is currently what they're looking at. But I would hope that they could get that number higher since we're both talking about affordability uh, in the marketplace. And I think that we, the city and the county, can play a very significant role in our using our dollars to to supplement or to help subsidize some of that. Uh, affordable housing in the community. Now, the other part of it being too is, you know, working with local developers where you can incentivize them in some way to bring in some affordable housing into their into their projects. I know that we saw that with tribute properties, the Mainers, their military cutoff, where I think they they allocated about 10%. We worked out a deal with uh, Mr. Spatrino there off of uh, Cinema Drive for some additional units, affordable units in that particular project. We've got some other projects that are on the um, that that they're talking about affordability into their projects. So we're starting to see some of that private sector volunteer their their efforts in putting some affordable units into their developments. We may be able to 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 um, enhance that by saying, you know, if you're only going to put 10 percent, how about if the city puts in a certain amount of money and we put it move it up to 20 percent yeah and so i know the, the, we're gonna we're gonna see some of that happening probably hopefully within the next in, in, in the in the very uh, foreseeable future so tribute put in I, I believe it was between a quarter and a half million dollars into sort of the early version of a you know a housing fund um right but we've talked to a lot of developers where it may, it may take more money than that is there any possibility of a housing bond on the horizon we have not talked about one yet, but what we do anticipate, I think at the next meeting that we're, that the city is going to have with the county, we anticipate that we will have the, um, the, the, the um, affordable housing coalition folks come give a presentation to the city and county, reiterate their 21 recommendations in addition to what they think we should do. But that's something that, that could possibly happen. I don't know if it would happen um in in this year's um um putting that up for referendum but i i would i would anticipate that you might see something like that maybe in 2022 possible uh housing uh, some kind of a housing bond where you can say to the people for affordable for affordability we like to uh, propose you know 10 million dollars and, and to see if the, if the taxpayers of the community would support that plus the fact is too ben that the vast majority of broad acreage or availability of land lies in the unincorporated areas in the county, especially in the northern part of the county and maybe some in the southern part of the county. So there's some opportunity there. And we as a city have made a determination that if we find an affordable project that is outside the incorporated city limits that may reside in the county, but working with the county, we would be willing to put taxpayers' dollars into that project because we feel that well, such, Mr. this is such a small county yeah. that we could do that. Mr. Mayor, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to stop you there. Um, I'd love to have you back and talk more about this. I know the city and county are planning a meeting in April. Um, certainly a lot more for us to discuss. Uh, in the meantime, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, buddy. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, Bill Sappho is Wilmington's longest-serving mayor, and he may or may not run for an eighth term in November's municipal elections. We'll be back after a short break with today's Reporter Roundtable. Joining me will be WECT's Michael Pratz and WHQR's Rachel Keith, and we'll be taking a closer look at Project Grace, River Place, and other public-private partnerships. If you're listening to The Newsroom, I'm Ben Schachman. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Joining me now in the newsroom are Michael Pratz from WECT and Rachel Keith from here at WHQR. Welcome. Glad to have you both here. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Ben. The proximate cause of our discussion today is Project Grace. Uh, if you don't know where this is, this is downtown Wilmington. It's uh, between Chestnut and Grace, 3rd and 2nd Street. It's a public-private development between New Hanover County and Zimmer Development, and it'll include a new library, a new relocated Cape Fear Museum, and some private development. But before we get into the details... I want to scaffold this a bit for people at home who are wondering, why do I care about a public-private development? What kind of bureaucratic nonsense are you guys about to get into? Um, So a public-private partnership is exactly that. It's a commingling of public taxpayer money and private investment. And when it works, it allows governments to do more and, and tackle projects they never could handle on their own. And when it goes wrong, it can cost taxpayers tens of millions of dollars. Uh, so, Rachel Keith, let's start with you. Let's start with the optimistic version of this. Uh, what are some of the benefits of PPPs? Why do government bodies enter into these agreements? Yeah, so, Ben, you you said that it's when a government partners with, usually in our case, what we're going to talk about today is with a developer. And what they say is when they lease it out to the, the developer that they can build residential units. And um, since they're a partner in the project, they can help mold the design of what the public will see. And that also um, what we're seeing with, we're gonna talk about Project Grace and then the government center today. And both of those projects, we're hoping to see about 5% of the residential units will be affordable. And the county defines that as about 60 to 120% of the area median income. So a lot of people in our community say, where's the affordable housing? These public-private partnerships are one way to do that. Yeah, so when a private developer just builds on their own by right or after rezoning, government can't really tell them what to do. But in this case, they can kind of get their hands in there on the project. So I, I want to talk specifically about Project Grace first. And I want to take this back to 2017. Uh, when this project was first introduced. Uh, Michael Pratt, you covered this for Port City Daily back in the day. Um, it's looked a little different when it first rolled out. Yeah, it, it certainly did. We had, uh, the county presented about four different options of what Project Grace could look like. Uh, they weren't exactly sure which way they wanted to take it. They weren't sure what they wanted to do with the library uh, or the museum for that matter. They were, you know, there were different options uh, and each option cost uh, taxpayers uh, significantly more or less. Uh, so the option that the uh, that the county ultimately decided on was called Scenario Four at the time, and that did uh, you know move the library, it moved the museum downtown, and it did some major renovations to that library that obviously already is there, uh, and it also was going to take the longest for t- uh, for the county to pay back. It was uh, estimated to take 19 years to for the county to pay back its portion uh, of about 107 million. Uh, was the was the overall cost? Uh, the county was going to pay about twenty million, uh, which would have taken about twenty years to pay back. 
Yeah. And so, you know, uh, for about a year or two, this was, you know, there were public hearings and, and the public had a chance to look at it. There were, you know, artists rendering, but it never got to the formal, you know, develop agreement stage. And then there was some public pushback, uh, in particular from the Historic Foundation. They wanted to preserve the, the Belk building. And the project kind of disappeared in 2019. Uh, and now it's back two years later. And it, the cost is... Michael, as you were saying, uh, you know, used to look between twelve and twenty million dollars. It's considerably more expensive now, um, somewhere around fifty-six million dollars, and that's in part because uh, those original options were sort of fleshed out in a marketing study before Zimmer Development Company got involved. Um, and when you have a much more expensive project, uh, you're going to have some financing questions. And this is something we looked at with the government center too. Um, Rachel, walk us through a little bit what what you looked at when we were looking at the government center redevelopment. And for people who are not familiar with this, this is the government building over by 10 Pin Alley off of Racine Drive. And uh, the county has a plan to sort of totally redevelop that area. Yeah, and this started, they put out requests for proposals, I believe in late 2019. And again, they're going to build um, a new government center with an emergency operations and 911 center. And they're also going to have residential units there. And so what the initial financial model looked at was that the county was going to pay a lease agreement. So that meant that they would pay a lump sum to the developer each year to build the project. And um, they received a letter from the local government commission who is under the umbrella of the Department of Treasury. And they said, hey, interest rates are at historic lows it's about one to two percent right now so you need to switch paying the developer to lease the land and ultimately you'll receive that back um because again the developer was about to get about four to five percent from the county but with the bond agreement that they did go ahead with was one to two percent so basically the local government commission saved the county about 20 million dollars on this project just by changing the finance financing model yeah and it's worth pointing out the county had already approved this financing model uh the lgc sort of came in as a last phase of the official uh improvement and i i do want to i think to be fair though i want to point out that we are not the only government project that has had that experience uh, I want to play a quick clip. This is from a conversation I had with uh, State Treasurer Dale Falwell, and I, I asked him about this thing. So uh, let's let's hear what he had to say about that. And it's me talking first, and then Treasurer Falwell. We're talking here about the New Hanover County uh, Government Center redevelopment plan, and what the LGC did was they looked at the difference between financing it themselves through a bond, a limited obligation bond, and and financing it through a developer. And the difference was a considerable amount of taxpayer money. I mean, do you guys catch stuff like this fairly regularly? Every week. Uh, as you can as you can imagine, Ben, with over thirteen hundred entities that report to us, uh, all the cities, counties, and water and sewer districts, you can imagine uh some of the stuff that we see from a financing standpoint. So you know, it, that's that's their job at the local government commission is to step in. And uh, there's some questions about whether or not the LGC will get a chance to look at Project Grace. Uh, we heard um, this week from the Treasury Department they haven't looked at it yet. The county has said the project's approval is contingent on the LGC uh, giving it the AOK. Mm -hmm. So we know right now that the way Project Grace is set up right now may not be set in stone. If the LGC said you could save uh, a lot of money, they will have to back out of the MOU and do it differently. And again, it looks like a very similar structure. 
and the difference between what you would get paying about one to two percent interest versus four to five percent interest. That's that's sounds like a lot of weedy numbers. Let me put it simply: twenty million dollars, right? So yeah, um, so th- yeah, that's- it looks like about four and a half million that they're looking to pay for a project grace a year. Yeah, so it's it's a serious amount of money, and this is why. You know, we we pay close attention to this stuff because this is not a small amount of change, and of course, that would be taxpayer money uh, that was paying for it. So, I want to talk about another project. You know, so Project Grace and the redevelopment of the government center. Uh, if they're financed well and they they check all the all the boxes, it seems like they will make a lot of people happy. Um, there are other pitfalls, and Michael Pratt, I want to go to you for this uh, because for years you covered Wilmington's River Place project. Mm-hmm. Uh, initially conceived of as a way to get private development and the city would get a parking deck out of it. Uh, originally ballparked around $12 million, but that's not where it ended. So if you can, walk us through a little bit of what happened with River Place. Sure. So as you said, it was to replace that, uh, I believe, the Water Street parking garage. It is completed now, at least uh, mostly complete. Um, and as you said, it was originally not supposed to cost as much as it did. It ended up costing taxpayers over $25 million. Uh, and for that money, what they got was a parking deck. Now, uh, from 2017, at least that we know of, uh, there were several issues the city ran into uh, and the and the developer, East-West Partners, uh, ran into. The first being before construction even started, uh, I believe it was 2018, uh, the cost jumped $8 million just in one year before they even broke ground. Uh, there were issues securing the air rights, which uh, was was a setback for them as far as uh, starting off, starting the project on time. There were delays that obviously can't be controlled, like Hurricane Florence. Uh, all these things, they did add up, uh, especially when it comes to cost, though. I mean, uh, the cost of labor, the cost of lumber and different materials does fluctuate. So it ended up costing, you know, when it's all said and done, uh, $25 million plus for the city to get a parking garage, which is significantly higher uh, than what parking decks typically cost cities. Yeah, and uh, we did a little back of the napkin math here at HQR. Um, it's one of the, you know, one of the benefits of a public-private project is that it does increase, it spurs development, and development means yeah. increased tax values. So we looked at this year's uh, appraised tax value for River Place. Um, the building is worth about $41 million, and the city owns the, the dirt, so we're not taxing them based on that. So the tax that they pay, the county and the city combined, is about a half million dollars, with about a quarter of a million dollars going to the uh, city. So at that rate, it would cost take about 100 years uh, to recoup the cost of the taxpayer portion of the project through property values. So I want to give you both sides of that. Yes, it does increase tax value. Uh, a quarter million dollars is not nothing. That's, that's a large increase in tax revenue. But it's often presented as if it would balance out the project cost in general. And that's not always the case. And so I, I want to play a, a, a quick clip here from uh, County Manager Chris Coudre. He's talking about some of these issues, but he kind of sort of bullet points all the things that they'll be looking for when they do a public-private project. And that's one of them is the tax revenue. So let's hear from Coudre. Because the board will never commit to moving forward in a formal, in a binding way until there's clarity yeah. on what are the costs to the local government directly. What are uh, the indirect benefits to the community through better use of the space? Also, um, what what is the, the the cash equivalency to the county in terms of the purchase of this site and the uh, induced 
tax revenues of the future with the private development that, that comes here. If you're just joining us, this is The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Shockman, speaking with WECT's Michael Pratz and WHQR's Rachel Keith. We just heard from County Manager Chris Coudre talking about what the county and specifically county commissioners would look for in a project, which brings me to the last thing I want to say about Project Grace, which is that for all its you know flaws and missteps and you know overruns that River Place experienced, the process by which city council picked the ultimate project design was it was pretty long. It was pretty involved. I believe there were six initial uh, companies bidding on it. Um, this is back in 2013, 2014. Brett, is that correct? Sometime around then, yeah. Sometime around then. And, um, you know, we got a chance to see what the finished project would look like well before it was, you know, a done deal. And with Project Grace, we don't have that. Um, we all we sort of know is some square footage. If you've been, you know, if you're the kind of person who reads MOUs in your spare time, you'll notice that there are some square footage requirements uh, for the new <laughs> library and for the new Cape Fear Museum. But other than that, um, we don't know that much. And I think that's one source of ennui and angst about this is that we don't really know what the project will look like, and county commissioners are already sort of uh, already sort of buying in and. This this makes me think about the uh, the next big public-private project that's on the horizon, and this is the uh, so-called Gateway Project. This is the north side of Wilmington when you drive in right when you get off MLK. Um, we're in the early stages of agreement with that. Pratt, you covered this a little bit. Um, what what kind of things are we looking at with that project? So, again, it, it, it's going to be a very expensive project, and we don't have a whole lot of information besides I think it was a 80 to $90 million price tag. Uh, there was there was a RFP and a bidding process, and I believe the city uh, at least was looking favorably on uh, East West Partners uh, to develop that, which, as you know, is the same developer behind the River Place. So naturally, we did have some questions about, uh, you know, previous experience with that company, as that was touted as one of the reasons they would go with them. Um, we do know that they want to have a grocery store in there, uh, which is something that that you know, the, the whole downtown area as a whole has been uh, screaming from the rooftops for, for years now. Uh, so this would be an opportunity for the government because, you know, a, as you know, the government doesn't get to decide what businesses, uh, b- besides zoning regulations, obviously, uh, but what businesses come into town and where they go. So this would give uh, government a chance to say, hey, we'd really like to have a grocery store in here uh, and, you know, make that part of the, the development agreement. But other than that, uh, we know it's about three parcels of land that the city owns right as you come in uh, n- from North MLK into the city. Uh, but, you know, really I haven't seen a whole lot of movement, and I think COVID has also kind of set that process back. Yeah, so I think, you know, if you're looking at these projects, you can kind of see a spectrum of how much control local government really ends up exerting over them. You know, we hear from the public they want things like public space and affordable housing, a grocery store, which we'll talk more about in the uh, last part of this of today's show, but you know it's it doesn't always quite work out that way. And I think the reason uh, government goes into this is that, like you said, the 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 city of Wilmington or New Hanover County doesn't have the the facilities or the, or the money really just to go around building that kind of thing. But when they you know get into an agreement with like this, sometimes things get a little slippery. Um, so the other the last part of this that I want to talk about is, you know, one thing we hear every time when these projects come up, because government's involved and they can exert a little control, is affordable housing. Um, We heard from Mayor Sappho earlier that 
he still thinks he can get about 30% of the units in the gateway projects to be affordable. Uh, we've seen much lower numbers with the county's projects, mm-hmm. 5%. Um, Rachel Keith, I believe it was 5% for the government center. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, and is it the same for Project Race? Yes, it's the same. And obviously, well, with the government center, um, the developer said 5%, but Project Grace, the minimum is 5 So they could go beyond the 5% if they wanted to. And it has to be affordable for at least 10 years with Project Grace. Sure. Uh, so that's, you know, those are the, that's the government's way of doing it when they directly get their hands on the project. There's a lot of questions about how much control the government will exert on the development that's left. And Wilmington's, you know, dang near out of developable land. I think it's under 5% of the land left. Uh, but the northern part of the county, northern New Hanover County, is to a certain extent so wide open. And this is the last thing I want to talk about. And because Rachel Keith, you reported on this recently. Um, you know, the, the county, when someone wants to rezone land, if a land is originally supposed to be a rural neighborhood or, or farm or something and they want to build you know a big mixed-use development they have to get it rezoned and there's always some hesitancy for the county to say no to these people um so Rachel can you tell us a little bit about what you saw when the county did say no yeah I mean right now there's this um large development it was Coswalt and tribute companies that wanted to build about 290 apartments with some commercial space as well and um they are in the court and North Carolina Court of Appeals right now because they did win, the county did win in Superior Court, but now the developers have appealed and said, we still want to build this large project. But the county basically won this case in Superior Court because they said that it was a threat to public safety and that they did not have the stormwater infrastructure and um, the roads were not adequate for this new development. So again, the the northern part of the county, that's one of the last sections where these larger projects probably could come up. And again, there's a lot of flooding in that area too. So um, commissioners are really trying to weigh the public safety versus continuing development. So it'll be interesting to see if the county ultimately does win this appeal case um, coming hopefully this year. Yeah, we're also looking forward to see whether the city and the county together will have some kind of joint strategy to encourage developers in the northern part of the county uh, to build affordable units. Perhaps I'll end with you. Uh, We once spoke uh, to uh, people from Cameron Development Mm -hmm. about this. Um, Bottom line takeaway, uh, what will it take for developers to build affordable housing? Really, it's going to take some sort of uh, government incentive or just a significant market to to drop and that doesn't really seem like something in the foreseeable future it's just too expensive land in new hanover county and our region in particular is just so expensive uh materials as i was saying earlier with river place why prices fluctuate um you know a lot of people like to you know blame the developers for you know coming in and building luxury apartments but uh at the end of the day you know at least according to them uh, they obviously do profit, otherwise they wouldn't be able to be in business. Uh, but their profits are not, you know, as sky high as they might seem, uh, simply because of the cost of labor, the cost of materials, and the cost of land here. So without some sort of incentive to allow for, uh, you know, higher higher uh, building heights, maybe in the northern part of the county, because it is, you know, able to go higher, you can put in more units, and uh, so it really comes down to incentives. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time. I'm sure we could talk about development and the 
the intricacies of bureaucracy for the rest of the day. But I appreciate you both for spending your time with us. Michael Pratz, Rachel Keith, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. All right, after a short break, we'll be back with Cedric Harrison and Evan Folds. We'll be talking about the food deserts, cooperative businesses, and putting a grocery store in Wilmington's Northside neighborhood. I'm Ben Schachman, and you're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. Please stay with us. Welcome back. You're listening to The Newsroom on WHQR. I'm Ben Schachman. The Northside Food Co-op is an ambitious plan to create a cooperative grocery in the food desert of Wilmington's Northside, something that's been proposed repeatedly by local government officials and other organizations for years, but it's never really materialized. Cedric Harrison, founder of Support the Port and a native Wilmingtonian who was raised in the Northside, is the president of the project. Evan Folds, is a supervisor with the New Hanover Soil and Water Conservation District, and he's been consulting with the Northside Co-op. Evan, Cedric, glad to have you here. Great to be here. Glad to be here, absolutely. Evan, let's start with a little context. For people who aren't familiar with the term, what is a food desert? Well, a food desert uh, generally is defined by the USDA as uh, an area that lacks a source of fresh food within a mile of... uh, from the location, so um, it's it's something that's used to identify um, you know underserved areas. Uh, it's you know one, the north side of downtown has been a food desert for over 30 years, so it's it's one of those things that you know is, was deliberated in order to bring a highlight on areas that needed needed access to fresh food. Uh, in general terms. Yeah, there actually was a A&P grocery store, I believe. Cedric, do you remember there being the A&P there? Oh, yeah, I didn't go to it. Uh, it was a little bit before my time on the north side, but, um, yeah, well, you can't you can't go around and talk about a grocery store on the north side without hearing about the A&P store. So there are, there are multiple uh, food deserts around the Wilmington area, but this is one where the city of Wilmington, the New Hanover Regional Medical Center, which is now Novant, uh, and other partners have all sort of talked in the past about, you know, bringing a bringing a full service grocery store there. Um, what's there now? If you you live in the north side and you say you want to walk and get groceries, Cedric, what's what's sort of available there? Um, you have a Family Dollar that's close to the high school. Um, you have a few, um, like, carry out spots uh, where you can go and grab a a meal, um, and then you have just a flood of convenience stores on for every corner that there's a church there's a convenience store <laughs> yeah yeah so i walked around the north side a couple of days this week uh because the weather was so nice and you know i i got a sense from talking to people that you know oftentimes they'll drive up to the food line in castle hayne or they'll sort of go down to market and go up there um i certainly didn't talk to anyone who didn't think a local grocery store would be a good thing um, but this is a question that we keep coming back to about, you know, why isn't there a grocery store there? It seems like, you know, in the past, the stars have aligned. Um, it just hasn't happened. And I, I wanted to play this clip because um, this, this came up during a, a recent roundtable. This was the Wilmington Downtown Incorporated. And they were talking about um, Project Grace, which is uh, the county's redevelopment project on the block at Chestnut and 3rd. And every time there's a development project, people ask if a grocery store might go in there. 
so in this clip, this is uh, the board chair. This is uh, Dane Scalise talking to the new president of WDI, Holly Childs, and just point blank, um, why don't we have a grocery store? So let's let's hear what they had to say about that. Why is it that we haven't been able to get a grocery store into downtown as of yet? I guess it's sort of related to this project in, in some ways. <laughs> That's a great question, Dane, and probably about the 70th time I've heard that question in just a few weeks in being here. So, um, you know, the primary driver for retail has always been rooftops, has always been people. And um, if people don't have, if we don't have the residential, um, just as Natalie mentioned, if we don't have the residential to support um, folks coming into town um, then then they're not going to locate in, in our area I mean it's a it's a competitive game we want to continue to grow a thriving downtown and we want to make sure that we get enough people and that the workforce um, has the quality of life that includes uh, being able to plan for a grocery store and to be able to attract one we need people so Evan you and I have talked about this in the past but you know, people always will will point to particular intersections in Wilmington where there are four, sometimes five grocery stores, you know, within, a, you know, a single square mile. And, you know, do you get the sense that that's the only problem, that there aren't enough rooftops in the north side to build a grocery store? Or is there something else going on? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of things. Um, you know, we just got done with a market study with the north side food co-op. And not surprisingly, the density that you would typically see for a grocery store development uh, isn't reported. Um, it's not a discouraging study. It's really not surprising. Uh, but I think that what the reason, I mean, there is a reason that the there's not a grocery store there now by the equations, the way chain stores work. You know, I was on the board at Tidal Creek for uh, years back, kind of got on the board after Trader Joe's and Whole Foods moved in and you know they were being impacted by competition. And we were considering a move downtown and did a, a market study for the south side at the time and the numbers weren't there as well but um you know what my best guess is there's somewhere around 20,000 people that are living downtown now it's 2016 census is somewhere around 15,000 there's articles that'll tell us tell you that 5,000 more people have moved down there there's a lot more uh, that are coming I don't I haven't been able to kind of zero in a definitive number um you know everybody eats um and so there's there's a place for it uh, by the equation based, you know, the market study would recommend a square footage based on the number of cars that drive by, the ingress, egress opportunities, infrastructure, et cetera. Um, but, it, you know, it's also a matter of income, right? And when you look at the north side uh, wellness assessment, um, you know, the, the median income is $27,000 a year. So that factors into, you know, a chain grocer looking at an equation and their appetite to try to serve a community um, beyond just the numbers of people there. So, you know, that that's really the purpose of our project is to kind of, you know, break through that barrier of perceived people don't have enough money to eat um, kind of mentality and serve them and serve the, the, uh, the, the people that live there in the, in the community in that way. So, you know, the, I think, I think there's kind of cultural, economic, and um, household factors that uh, prevent that. But uh, that's not something that we can't overcome by making a choice to do it anyway. Uh, and that's really what we're what we're trying to do here. Sure. So let's talk about how a co-op is different than you know just plopping down a food line right on you know let's say you know Eighth and Nixon or something. Because certainly some people would be okay with that. But this is sort of a, a whole different paradigm. So. Again, people have different levels of familiarity with the co-op. Cedric, 
give us a sense of what you, you know, what's your vision for what the co-op would look like, you know, if it opened next week? What would it look like to people? Uh, the co-op open uh, next week, it would probably be uh, terrible because we don't have, we haven't raised as many funds we need to to make it look great, look look nice. But um, it would just have your, it would, it would first have the items that people in this community are already very accustomed to already purchasing from the store already. Um, and then as uh, I go into just my imaginary thoughts, now I, I might say some things that probably some of the other board members won't agree with. <laughs> um, but just as far as my idea, what it would look like, it would it was first start off with the groceries that a lot of the folks that are accustomed in this area are accustomed to. We're not trying to totally change their habits. Um, immediately, we want people to still be able to have their free range of choice and freedom of whatever they would like to do. Um, and but as we do that, we will also have uh, a lot of marketing or, or should I say educational material around the building um, as we put out information about the benefits of the, the food co-op, the benefits of other healthier options to pick between what you're used to having. And then um, as people are coming to this store to engage in getting these these items and these uh, the food and nutrition, um, we would love to, you know, as, as we do have the hospital at the table, to have a dietitian nutrition on hand to where he can help, um, you know, point people in the direction of food uh, that can have them in a more of a preventative space than a reactive space and having to go and point them in the direction of medicine um, that, you know, sometimes we know can, can, can be harmful to, to some people um, more than it does actually help them. So um, we're, we're looking to have food be the main thing to bring people in. And so as we look for the shelves of the things that they're used to buying, we're also wanting to surround that with uh, good organizations, good people, and uh, good people that can actually give good uh, informational workshops and education uh, around better choices that people can make to you know, increase their life expectancy. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm talking today with Cedric Harrison and Evan Folds, and we're discussing the Northside Food Co-op. Evan, we're hearing this vision of a co-op that's more than just a grocery store. We're talking about community services, and in the past we've talked about there being community spaces there. Um, the other the other part of this that's different than, say, plopping a food line down in the middle of the north side is community ownership. I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit. You've already had a number of people. I, I talked to someone on the street um, yesterday who mentioned that they uh, her husband, she was a substitute teacher, and her husband had bought her and their uh, child all a, uh, an ownership. So how does how does that part of this work? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really the uh, an exciting aspect of this, and it's the number one question that we get. You know, what is a cooperative business? You know, there's, there tends to be a mentality around, oh, it's just a normal business that wants to be co- cooperative, or it's a nonprofit. Um, and there's really not surprising that there's a lack of awareness around cooperative business. Uh, to my knowledge, there's only one other cooperative business in Wilmington. That's Tidal Creek uh, over on Oleander. Um, so. But what, what it is, is it's actually uh, uh, Chapter 54, Subchapter 4 of North Carolina Code that carves out uh, the possibility of, of creating a cooperative business, which basically, in a nutshell, is one person, one share, one vote. Uh, it's kind of the, the, the essence of equity in, uh, in action, really, uh, in democracy, if you will. And, you know, so what that means is nobody can own 51% of, of the business and make all the decisions. It's literally owned one person at a time by a multitude of owners. Uh, and those owners vote democratically uh, a board of directors and the board of directors carries out the business by hiring a general manager at this point, a project manager, which is myself and um, 
eventually I'll hand the baton to a general manager that would run the grocery store and the community would have direct input into the way the store is opened. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it has repercussions in terms of the spirit of the project as well. Um, you know, there's real data that says a couple things. One that says it's not enough just to build a grocery store. You know, this is not a traditional uh, equation-based, you know, economic play. This is uh, a really a, an exercise of activating the community to own itself, uh, which is really what takes the investment in time and, and energy up front is to really connect people to what we're actually doing. Um, and so, so that aspect of it is, is a lot of the legwork at this point um, and, and really educating people on what a cooperative business is. And, and, you know, by definition, it's more than a grocery store because a cooperative business in a sense really is a community in and of itself. Um, so it's an exercise kind of piggybacking Cedric's comments to, to really, you know, initiate some, some true kind of, you know, human impacts in regards to the way we eat, you know, challenging people to cook more and making that available um, and those sorts of things. So one thing I want to bring up is uh, the Greensboro Co-op, which I know you guys have paid a lot of attention to. This was the Renaissance Community Co-op in Greensboro. Um, some similarities here. It opened in a largely black working class neighborhood in 2016. The region had been a, uh, a food desert. Um, you know, they planned for years. They had about a th- they had over a thousand co-op owners when they opened. You know, a lot of the people who worked there said it was the best job they'd ever had. Had a lot of community buy-in, had a lot of a local government buy-in. Um, and it closed after just over two years. And in 2019, there was actually a roundtable. Uh, it was the nonprofit quarterly hosted this, and they sort of dug into what worked and what didn't work. And so I want to play this quote. Um, this is from uh, Shawnee Black, who was a community organizer in the area. And she talked about some of the issues they knew they would face. They knew they would face competition from the big box stores, from Walmart. They knew they would face the ubiquitous and sometimes loathed Dollar General or Family Dollar. Um, and they, you know, they struggled to keep good management staff, but then they were blindsided by something that they didn't see coming. So let's listen to this clip and hear what she had to say about that. Some of the things that we thought, some of the marketing fallacies that we had coming into this is if we build it, they will come. We thought because the community said to us, we want this, we want this store, we need this, that if we opened a store, people would come and shop there, especially people in the community in droves. We also felt like because this was the only full service grocery store within a two and a half mile radius, that was our market area, that people would come to the store because they had no other choice. We failed to take into account that people had been shopping other places and managing to get fed for almost two decades. So they had already had these really deeply entrenched shopping habits. The reality was what we needed was a context specific marketing plan and the capacity for the staff and management to execute it. We had to recapture that market audience that we lost when the store closed two decades earlier. So she's talking about a grocery store that closed in the region, you know, 20 years before the, the co-op over at Cedric. Uh, this is the last thing I want to f- really drill down and focus on. You know, what can you guys do to you know, change people's habits? I mean, people have been going to Food Line for a long time. You know, what can how can you guys address that issue? Yeah. Um, so this actually kind of helps me to, to finish adding on to my answer of the last question. I know I was getting a little too wordy there, but, you know. Um, one of the also, one of the other things that we're also trying to have inside this uh, cooperative grocery store is actual, you know, vendor kiosks for kiosks for small business owners, you know, that are in the north side area, you know. So now that people are actually coming to this grocery store, um, you know, of course we know that people are already accustomed to, 
you know, not having a grocery store on this side of town. So they, they probably already have their schedule set up to where they know they can go to the Walmart while they're leaving from school or leaving from work, picking up the kids or what have you. Um, and so what we're trying to do now is make this very, very uh, community focused. As you as you bring up the Greensboro reason, as you talked about, you know, we thought if we build it, that they would come. We, we know that <laughs> that's not how this is. This is not how it works. You know, you really have to get on the ground with the people and these people have to help help you build this the whole entire time. You don't just bring them in when the doors are time to open. And so we are already working on that by having committees um, as and we're and we're being transparent where we're already having board board meetings um, in front of uh, the community audience. And we're and we're encouraging them every day to get on board and, and join us because we can't do this without them. Yeah, well, I really look forward to continuing this conversation as you guys move along. Unfortunately, we're just about out of time. Of course, if our listeners want more information about the Northside Food Co-op, uh, they can follow you guys on Facebook and Instagram. They can find a ton of details at uh, northsidefoodcoop.com. We'll have all those links on the show page so people can find them. Uh, Cedric, Evan, thank you both so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right. Cedric Harrison, president of the Northside Co-op, and Evan Folds, project manager and all-around knowledgeable guy about food, thanks for joining us. And that's it for this edition of the Newsroom. Thanks to our guests, Mayor Bill Sappho, Michael Pratz, Rachel Keith, Cedric Harrison, and Evan Folds. Thanks to Ken Campbell and Andrew Craig for engineering and editing this program, and Doc Jardin for his help producing. If you missed part of the program, you can find it at whqr.org, and it will air again this Sunday at 91.3 FM at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can now also find it as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher, and it will soon be available on Google Play. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.